Welcome to Behind the Case, an ACG Case Reports Journal podcast, brought to you by the American College of Gastroenterology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Case, this time from ACG 2019 annual meeting in San Antonio. I'm Roberto Simons Linares, Editor-in-Chief of the ACG Case Reports Journal and a GI Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Jody Barking, who is the author of a noteworthy article published in our journal. He's currently an assistant professor in a therapeutic endoscopy at the University of Miami. Welcome, Jody, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Roberto. Thank you for having me and really excited to be here at ACG 2019 with truly a packed house and some really wonderful lectures and presentations that we'll see over the next few days. Excellent. So Jody's article is entitled Postcholecystectomy Biliary Clip Migration Causing Acute Pancreatitis. So Jody, could you please summarize the case for the audience? Absolutely. So our patient was a 61-year-old gentleman who had a history of aortic stenosis, diabetes mellitus, and hyperlipidemia, who underwent laparoscopic cholecystectomy for symptomatic cholelithiasis and cholecystitis previously. Now, we started seeing him 15 months after that episode of cholecystitis when he presented with his first episode of acute pancreatitis. At that time, a CAT scan showed six endoclips at the cystic duct stump and one endoclip within the distal common bile duct that was felt to be a potential etiology of his acute pancreatitis, after which he underwent an ERCP and sphincterotomy with clearance of the duct. Interestingly enough, four months later, or 19 months post his cholecystectomy, he underwent a second episode of acute pancreatitis. And at that point, repeat cross-sectional imaging showed now just five endoclips at the cystic duct stump and one endoclip that had migrated into the duodenum. And therefore it was felt that the endoclip migration was the cause of his acute pancreatitis after other etiologies were excluded. So uh, to explain to the audience, to start with, what is acute pancreatitis, Jody, and why is it important to know acute pancreatitis? First, we have to define acute pancreatitis, and our current definition of acute pancreatitis is based on the revised Atlanta classification, which was published in GUT by Peter Banks and colleagues. The revised Atlanta classification has three pillars, of which a patient must satisfy two out of the three. First is abdominal pain consistent with acute pancreatitis, and that's classically epigastric pain radiating to the back. Second is an elevation in serum amylase or lipase greater than three times the upper limit of normal. And third, are imaging findings consistent with acute pancreatitis, such as stranding or edema. Importantly, as we may see at times, patients with isolated amylase or lipase elevations who are asymptomatic and have normal imaging should not be defined as acute pancreatitis. Now, the subsequent question is, why is acute pancreatitis important? And to understand that, we have to understand the burden of disease. So acute pancreatitis is the third most common reason for GI-related hospitalizations in the United States annually. This accounts for 280,000 admissions, of which 150,000 are incident or new cases annually. Now, this may be an isolated episode. For example, the patient that had sludge causing acute pancreatitis underwent a cholecystectomy with no subsequent complications and no further episodes. Or it may be complicated by, for example, a pseudocyst, necrosis, or a recurrent episode. And we know that in patients with recurrent episodes, about 40 to 50,000 of the 150,000 will have a recurrent episode, so about a third of patients. With each episode of inflammation, the overall long-term risks of progressing to exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, scarring of the gland or chronic pancreatitis increase. 
And interestingly, with chronic pancreatitis, we know that that's a risk factor for pancreatic cancer. So this is really a spectrum of disease. And the question is how we can intervene to break that progression in the case of patients with recurrent acute pancreatitis by identifying an etiology and then potentially removing that. Excellent. That was a great summary on the burden of acute pancreatitis. You, you kind of touched already on the typical presentation of acute pancreatitis and not much different in your case. So do all acute pancreatitis patients, regardless of the etiology, present the same? And why is it important to know the etiology? Sure. So everybody may present a little bit differently. For example, based on the revised Atlanta classification, you may have a patient that has pain and an elevation in lipase with perhaps catching it a little bit earlier on in the course of disease before you see marked imaging findings. The important part is that the management, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, is really paramount from the beginning. Now, identification of etiology is one of the classic tenets that we have to find as we manage patients with acute pancreatitis. And the reason that that's not necessarily part of the initial management is because regardless of etiology, the initial management may be the same. But long term, the identification of etiology is what may help us prevent a patient from going on to have recurrent episodes of disease. We know that about two-thirds of the cases of acute pancreatitis are attributable to either biliary etiology, such as gallstones and sludge, or alcohol. We know that despite exhaustive investigations, about 20% of patients may be labeled as idiopathic because no identifiable etiology is found, and in those patients, we're left with trying to mitigate complications. But there's another subset of patients of about 15% of patients that may have another less common etiology, for example, hypertriglyceridemia, genetics, etc. In those patients, we know that specifically, if we don't identify that etiology correctly up front, that may predispose them to recurrent episodes thereafter. Excellent. And among that 15% of other ideologies is your case, the post-cholecystectomy. Absolutely. And can you tell us, do you find any other cases, similar cases to yours? Tell us about it, please. So this is a relatively rarely recorded etiology. We know that annually there are about 700,000 cholecystectomies performed in the United States and a relative paucity of cases of acute pancreatitis labeled to this. We know that there are complications potentially from cholecystectomies such as biloma, ductal injuries, etc. But this is relatively rarely reported. Including our case in total, there are five cases that we were able to find dating back to 1989, with the most recent case prior to ours published in 2014. These were primarily women, other than our patient that was a man, ranging in age from 36 to 74 years. And while one case was reported at just 15 days post-cholecystectomy, I think this is more of a delayed phenomenon, as most of the other cases were either six months to six years post, and in our case, 15 months post-cholecystectomy. And this is after tissue remodeling happens, at which point one of the clips may migrate down the duct and potentially serve as a nidus for stone formation. And what do you think is the mechanism of like the clip? Because I know in your case, the clip was found, you know, past, migrated mm-hmm. to the duodenum. And so what's the mechanism of So we have to understand that based on the chronicity, this is not something where the duct is ligated with a clip, such as would be causing potential bile duct injury. It's not that. This is primarily that one of the clips may migrate out of the cystic duct stump 
And as in anywhere in the body where there may be a foreign body, the body's natural response may be to either try to expel it, or in the case of not being able to expel it, it may serve as a nidus for debris to accumulate around it and cause a stone, as would be the case here, with potential hardening of that stone over time. As this clip comes down the duct with a stone surrounding it, that may be enough to cause acute pancreatitis. Now, interestingly, between the first case and the second case of acute pancreatitis here, an ERCP with syncterotomy was performed, and that may be the reason why, as the clip came down, it may have caused acute pancreatitis the second time, but was still able to migrate through, and that's why we saw the clip in the duodenum. So now moving to acute pancreatitis management. So how is acute pancreatitis managed and what was different in your case perhaps? So acute pancreatitis is really a volume depleted state. And some people have called this a retroperitoneal burn. And we know in burn patients, they're volume dependent. We have to take a page out of our surgical colleagues' practice, which is that lactated ringers is really now the preferable solution intravenously to use. Everybody's managing strategies in terms of targeted volume resuscitation or rubrics may vary from institution to institution, but these patients are genuinely volume depleted. That's why, for example, markers such as BUN and hematocrit may be surrogates for their volume depletion and trackable markers that we can use as we volume replete these patients. With the second part being that most commonly they may suffer, for example, from acute kidney injury. We know that the presence of organ failure in any way, shape, or form in acute pancreatitis is a poor prognosticator. And interestingly, the overall morbidity and mortality in these patients will be markedly different if these patients have transient organ failure, for example, with the correction of acute kidney injury at 24 to 48 hours post-presentation with the use of fluids, as opposed to persistent organ failure, which leads to a more non-benign course. Now, Jody, what was, in summary, what was the most challenging part of this case for you? I think the most challenging part in any case of acute pancreatitis, short of someone that has a very clearly identifiable etiology, for example, such as alcohol, where they said, hey, I was out on a vacation, suddenly had 10 drinks a day, and they're presenting with acute pancreatitis, which is not what most of our patients would present with, is really identifying the etiology. Because that's the paramount take-home message from this case, and I think most cases of acute pancreatitis, that we now better understand the management but in order to prevent that second episode, which fundamentally alters their overall long-term course and potentially puts them on that spectrum of disease towards long-term fibrosis and scarring, that in this case, the etiology is subtle. Picking up that there was a biliary clip that had migrated down and counting the clips between the first episode and the second episode to be able to facilitate that ERCP was very key. Now, the ERCP in and of itself didn't prevent that second episode, but these were relatively mild episodes of acute pancreatitis first and second after that second episode the patient has not had any further episodes and so at least understanding it gives us a better insight into the overall progression excellent now to summarize wrap up the case what are the take-home points of this case so the take-home point, number one, specific to this etiology, is that we know that cholecystectomies are common, and we know that acute pancreatitis episodes are relatively common annually in the United States. But we need to potentially think about cholecystectomy complications as a possible etiology. So while cholecystectomy may be a treatment for biliary acute pancreatitis to prevent recurrence, we have to long-term think about that this may be something that's a potential etiology thereafter, and lack of a gallbladder should not necessarily exclude a biliary etiology. 
The second part is that subtle etiologies and perhaps more rare etiologies are really important to identify in acute pancreatitis to take patients, if we can, out of that 20% labeled as idiopathic and put them into an identifiable cause, and if we can, mitigate that cause to prevent further recurrence. Thank you. That was a great summary. And I always like to ask our guests a non-medical question. So, Jody, tell us something about you that most people don't know. I'll give you two facts with this that I think go hand in hand. In college, I was a political science major and an intercollegiate debater. And both of those have fueled my desire for advocacy on the physician side and how we advocate for our patients and professions. And with that, I think the ACG has been an unbelievable advocate for us, for our patients, and for our colleagues in the field. So with that, I want to just say thank you for having me. And I'm really excited to be here at ACG 2019. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. And with that, we finalize this episode. Thank you again to uh, Dr. Jody Barkin for joining us today. And thank you to the audience for listening. Stay tuned and until next episode.